All right. Uh, welcome to this Parallax event. My name is Toma Mark. I'm the publisher of uh, Parallax magazine and Phenomen um, Verlag. That's the German publisher who um, specified on philosophy and spirituality and psychology. Um, my guest, our guest today is Alexander Barth. He is a uh, philosopher and a futurist and author of Digital Libido, amongst others, a book um, that I just recently published with Phenomen Publishing. And I'm very glad that he agreed to um, partake on this special event. Uh, it will go like this, that um, he, I will introduce him soon and we will have a short conversation and he will do a short lecture about 40 minutes 45 minutes and you will have the chance to answer a question to do uh, um, ask him some questions um, regarding his lecture you can do this by writing me in the chat box and I will give you the unmute, unmute you with Zoom basically so you can have the chance to talk directly to Alexander Barth in, in that moment. So I think the whole event will be around two, two hours maybe. For me it's a kind of premiere also because I also I, I did a couple of podcasts with uh, my show Lateral Conversations but this is a live event and I don't really know how this all will work out. So I hope you all will give me some slack. Um, yeah, so I hope um, you will enjoy this evening with Alexander Barth, uh, which I now um, uh, welcome to the stage. Alexander, are you there? I'm here, yes. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. I, should have a, I should have a proper picture. Right, you should. Okay. So where where did I change that? Still there. Yeah. there. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we won over technology. Right. Okay. Great. Humans won. Just, to, yeah. just took five <laughs> fucking minutes. <laughs> Sorry about yeah. that. You could probably edit it afterwards. So all of yes, you guys yes. to get the love feed, you'll get the full on experience. And right. Everybody watches this later. This will probably be cut out, and we will go straight to the right. micro lecture. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so how are you doing, Alexander? I'm very good. Actually, I'm in a good mood. Kind of these problems kind of add some charm to it. I hope there are participants. Of, of course. Yeah. No, it's the first time for me. So I, I hope they cut me some slack. And, and, but, I, you know, since we first met in, in February in Paris, I have the feeling that we are solving those problems on the fly all the time, basically. And well, we almost died after that meeting. Yes, that's <laughs> true. That's true. Unless you don't know the story, Tom and I went out. Uh, we were seeing Andrew Sweeney. The three of us are going out together for a weekend in Paris, and we had the most wonderful time. Okay, this is, this is where the idea of the Cigar and Cognac Club came along. So it's just like, it's an idea that the men's movement in Europe have adopted now. But essentially, the first Cigar and Cognac Club was early February 2020. It was me and you, Tom, and then our friend Andrew. And the three of us went out together in Paris. And on Sunday night, you and I went out and had dinner. And we both traced, traced it back to when that one we got the virus because we were both pretty ill like two or three weeks later. You in Majorca, me in Sweden. 
I went into isolation. I had a bad boot to COVID-19 for like 28 days or something like that during March and April. But it all started in Paris, early February. But we've survived. We're around. We're hopefully immune and um, looking forward to the post-corona universe, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so then, then, then uh, additionally, I mean, it's, it's not really part of this conversation, but then, you know, uh, we, we uh, started um, thinking about publishing your, your books in Germany and, you know, we did some wonderful podcasts, you know, so some mini series and you did an amazing series of podcasts with Andrew Sweeney. And, and so, and, and it's, it's, it was a wild ride this year. Yeah. And they're all available, so you can all go and check the information. You just basically Google Andrew Sweeney and Alexander Broad or Alexander right. Broad and Tom, and then you find us there. Right. So, and, and, and it all boils down to Parallax. So I'm a huge fan of Parallax. Tom runs Parallax, and Andrew runs it with Tom. So Parallax to me is a perfect example of like a really contemporary place where you can go online and find tons of really great material, especially this conversation that is somewhere between philosophy, politics, and spirituality especially that conversation. Parallax is really good at it. You're putting together great work, Tom. And the fact that we're also now working from a European basis means that Parallax also now introduces translations. So you can go into this discourse. It's not just completely Anglo-Saxon. We're kind of tired of the fact that so much of people are concerned and want to talk about these days is just completely in English. So it's, it's either directed from, from the UK or from the US. Right. But what's great about the kind of work we do is that we're all based in continental Europe. And one of translations to other languages. And, and right. thank you for translating digital libido. This is the original English version. Right. Yeah. Thank you for translating it so well to German, Tom. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing book. I hope you will talk a little bit about it. I mean, yes. it's like with, with, with Parallax also, and that is one of the great ideas that we had in Paris with Andrew together, that, you know, it's not just a, a magazine, but there's also like in the future, like a kind of academy attached where you can search and for new content and for new sense make, ways of sense making and, you know, and make sense of the kind of world and mess we, we are in right now and to you know, to find, to find a platform there. And that's, that's the general idea we had in Paris. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that. Yeah, because all the old institutions are going to go. This is one of the central theses of my work with John Sedeckist. Uh So we've written five books. We're working on the sixth one. And um, the first three books have been released in lots of different languages under the title, The Futurica Trilogy, because we're obviously futurologists and philosophers at the same time. So we, we've done a lot of work on, on where are we going, where's humanity going next. And obviously it's been writing for like 20 years. We've hit the nail now several times over. So like um, a lot of the things we predicted have been in our books already. We predicted pandemics would happen and take on a different scale in the internet age. You know, most of the things that are happening currently we predicted before. But we wrote, wrote those three books first, John and I, and then we continued now with a new trilogy, which probably when it's all finished is going to be called the Exodology. So it, it's essentially a philosophy on how you leave one paradigm of history and walk into another paradigm. And of course, the term paradigm is Thomas Kuhn's term for saying a certain age, like a certain age uh, we lived in and then we move on to another age. But of course, all these histories about exoduses, like you, you, you left America, Europe, went to America, you know, the story of the promised land, the Hebrews left Egypt, all these exoduses throughout history are good metaphors for what we're actually going through right now, except this time we're moving from one age to another age in history. And one of the central theses that, that Sertikin is now working with is that 
if you compare the current paradigm shift from previous paradigm shifts, we discover that all the old institution and the entire old power structure of the previous paradigm will eventually collapse or at least be marginalized. Right. An interesting thing with something like parallax here is that parallax is, of course, um, somewhere between academic and mass media in, 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 in the terminology of the old paradigm. Right. So, you know, you would have media. Media would all be mass media. It would be uh, the printing press, essentially, and its electronic versions. So that would be newspapers, radio, television. And all these mass media would be, you know, controlled from above. And they were recognized by the fact that they would distribute information, you know, very effectively right. throughout the system, but with no response. So basically, right. we, were t we were told what to do. Right. So, but focusing now more on digital libido, um, um, you will have a, like a lecture now. It's like, what's, what's the general topic of uh, what you were to talk about? Okay. So, the old institutions fall apart. New institutions open up. So parallax, that's where we fit in. I just want to say that. Somewhere between right. the academia, which is imploding today, and mass media, which is imploding today. So somewhere between these two in the online world is where we work at parallax. So I, I just want to say that. that right. Our philosophy is tied in with the kind of work that you do. So people right. see the connection here. Okay. So you will give me some half hour or something to explain this book, Digital Libido. Yeah, yeah. 40, yeah. 45 minutes. So All yeah. right. what, what, what will you be talking about? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, now, okay, I give you the floor. Yeah, finally, the technology works. I, I <laughs> yes. get the floor, yeah. I get the yes. floor. And, and all of you out there, all you guys out there, please remember, if you want to stay on after I'm finished, we're going to have a question and answer session, and Tom will let you in with your little face and your name and your voice, right. and you will then ask a question. So we, right. we try to make this work. So Right. So. Thank you, Alexander. We are all ears here now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So... I met John Soderquist in 1998. Believe it or not, we knew about each other before we started writing together, but we didn't know each other. And uh, I had an offer. I was hired by the Stockholm School of Economics in 1998 to give a series of lectures on the internet. And this was like late 1990s. And once I started studying the topic really deeply, I discovered that um, almost everything we'd assume about the internet already then was wrong. That might be easier to say now, you know, because we have the dot-com boom and, you know, a lot of attempts at understanding the internet and foster it and, you know, milk it for money or whatever. But most of those projects failed. It turns out that the projects that did succeed and became the tech giants that we have today took a much more long-term view and had a better understanding of what the internet was than the vast majority of people who tried to jump on the bandwagon in the late 1990s. So that was the general landscape where John and I were located. And I don't work on my own. Uh, I'm, I, you know, if Nietzsche had got his dead on his grave when he died, I want to have the individualist dead on my grave because I never believed in individualism. I think the idea that we're sort of stuck in our heads, that Descartes and the model Kant love this idea that we're stuck in our heads and we can't really, you know, connect with the outside world. Well, to begin with, we do connect, you know, with the rest of the world, including other human beings. We are incredibly social animals. We're tribal more, more than anything else. And, and, I always defend the right for humans to be human. I think try to change this into something we're not is always a terrible idea. Also a very costly one. So anyway, this is the late 1990s. John and I meet because I'm looking for a collaborator to work with on writing the box. And I was offered to write a book on my very radical internet theory. And I met John. We had dinner. 
this is an old story now, well-known story now. It was, apparently, I wasn't that good of a cook, according to John, but I cooked some chicken. It was in my house. And we had a drawing board in front of us. And we had the chicken and the drawing board and a glass of wine. We love drinking. And we're sitting there. And basically, on the map of the drawing board, we had a map of the book, of the theory. And then John said, Alexander, this is not just one book. This is like three books. This is like three books that we need to write over the next 10 years. And I said, okay, I don't even want to hear about the second and third book right now. I'm going to concentrate on writing the first book. So yeah, but John said, just so that you know, the, the, the theory is wider, way bigger than you've assumed for just one book. But let's go into this and see what we write. And that's how we invented a whole new field of philosophy we called Futurica. Futurica is essentially literature that deals on futurological issues, like futurist issues, from a philosophical point of view. So say you're going to do philosophy on the future, not on the past, not on the now. You're going to do philosophy on the future, you do Futurica. So the vulgar version of Futurica today would be something like Ray Kurzweil and the singularity theory, and the more advanced version of Futurica would be John Sedekist and Alexander Bard. So now you get the overall picture. So we started writing, the first book was called The Netokrats, it's called The Netokraten, I think in German. Um, it became a worldwide success. We traveled around the world the next four years with that book. Two years later, we started working on the second book, which is called The Global Empire. And if The Netokrats is quite accessible, I would say The Global Empire is pretty hard technical philosophical work. But it's a very important book in hindsight because it was with The Global Empire, second book, that we launched the entire philosophical theory of how to understand the current paradigm. And the title speaks volume, because when you hear the title, The Global Empire, you think somebody's going to conquer the rest of the planet, say be the Xi Jinping of China, or believe it or not, Bill Clinton as a nukes from America would conquer the rest of the world, and you would have a global empire. But actually what we stated in the book, this book came out in 2003, was that the global empire already exists. It's just that if you don't take the human perspective of the world, but you actually ask technology, then you would discover that the internet protocol is already the constitution of an empire, except it's a technological empire. So now, 20 years later, it's probably easier to understand that, you know, AI would eventually create individuals like agents, subjectivity, the way human beings are agents, each one of us is an agent, and we can then have agency together. We call it a collective agency or a tribal agency or a national agency, whatever. But the agents that we human beings are accustomed to when it comes to each other, we have conversations, is an agency obviously that a lot of machines are going to have in the future as well. And these agencies are then probably going to adhere to the idea of a global imperial order. So essentially what we said is that as soon as you start to collect data, that data will want sooner or later to have more data and it will marry other collections of data and the world's data centers are very likely eventually to become one huge data center. This is something we then explore later in our work in our fourth book, we come to that, but this was the global empire. They wrote a very accessible book, you know, to be, you know, favorites among students and, you know, people who want to get access to philosophy, which is the one that I recommend for you if you want to have an easy start with Bardo Sodekist. And this book is called the body machines. And the body machines was essentially an application of our philosophy onto the individual or individual human being. So if you want to write, if you want to read a book on the digital age and what it means to be a digital citizen or, or a person in this age and how it's different from previous paradigms, so what it means to be human, then the body machines is the place to go. Okay, those three books were later 
you know, re-released and repackaged as the Futurica Trilogy. You can get the entire Futurica Trilogy on Amazon, for example. You can also read those books separately. But those are the first three books. Now we come to the current second trilogy we're writing. John, John DiMerino, since we're turning 60 years old next year, and this is going to be the end of it. The, the, the sixth book we're writing at the moment, after Digital Liberty, is going to be the end of it. Because we put in pretty hard work into Digital Liberty and the, and the book before that, which is the Synthesis book. But these three books are going to be eventually another second trilogy. And after that, we're 60 years old. We probably resign and have our students write books and kill their fathers. And we have a lot of drinks and we make commentary on our work or something. That's the current plan. But the second trilogy of which Digital Liberty is the central work, it's called the Exodology. So what we did was that we started looking with fresh new eyes on the current contemporary society and looking into the future. And then we discovered there's a lot more that can be said about it than we actually discussed in the first three books. Because the first three books are focused very much on the technology. We felt that philosophers had talked about human beings quite a lot in the past. They understood how human beings operated. We love Hegel, we love Nietzsche, we love Freud, we love all these thinkers who, you know, talked and discussed human beings quite a lot. And on top of that, we got psychoanalysis and psychology and other things that try and attempt to understand human beings. But we're also deep ingrained in the world of psychoanalysis, which is where we get our understanding of the human mind from in our work. So we love Slavoj Žižek, for example, we sort of adapted to him, Jacques Lacan before him, and certainly Freud. So we felt that, okay, the second time around, since people now have understood that technology is taking over the world on a radical new scale, never seen before, even matching humans, even on the scale that we might not even know whether humans will still be around in the future. Since everybody's figured that out, and a lot of people are writing pop books on the topic, like Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, another Swede, by the way, or, you know, People are doing all these kinds of Ray Kurzweil ideas of singularity. We found all of these ideas to be very naive compared to what actually is confronting us. And not so much naive about the technology, but really naive about what it means to be human. So a key chapter in Digital Liberals is the chapter about the human constant and the technological variable. And this is fundamental to my and John's philosophy, is that if you look at human beings over the last 200,000 years, very little has changed. Our brains are about the same size they were 200,000 years ago. Sorry, but there's been no real development to humans. And the reason for that is that even if you plan to improve on ourselves and our genetic equality, the problem is that we all get drunk and fuck the wrong person on a Friday night, and then we breed and we have more children, and usually it's rather the most stupid people are more children than the smart ones. That's the bad news, but that's the way it works. So at best, humans can be considered to be constant, but humans can be studied much more deeply than we've done in the past. And the reason for that is precisely because of the human technological interaction. What do we mean by that? Well, we all know by now that we produce data. We all know that data is collected, huge data centers. Most of these tech giants are collecting enormous amounts of data and they hardly even know what they're gonna do with the data yet. Okay? But they figure out they're going to be doing incredibly powerful things with the data. If you use Google Maps or Waze when you drive, you get an experience of what you actually can start doing with people once you get their data. You know, three years ago, you would go to, say, Munich, and you would look for a restaurant, and you get 10 different suggestions, usually the 10 restaurants that were closest to your ass. These days, you get three suggestions because 
Google will have eliminated seven of the suggestions because they know that you're not going to go there anyway, because they know you well enough and they know your budget well enough and they know the kind of taste you have well enough that you would go to any of those seven restaurants. So they might as well give you three. But in reality, Google probably already know which restaurant you're going to go to anyway. So they might as well book the table for you and you go to that restaurant and have a nice meal, but they will also take the profit from the restaurant in the process. That's why tech giants will make tons of money because they got the data. But if you ask a philosopher like myself or John Sertiquist, what we want to do if we get access to data, we would love to do anthropology. So the discovery we had before we wrote this new trilogy is that we will actually know more about human beings than anybody's done before in history. We will not just have to sit and guess like Sigmund Freud did successfully or guess like Mircea Eliade did successfully or guess like even Jordan Peterson or Camille Pogler have done when they studied, you know, the history of art or the history of culture. No, we will know because we will have data from history on a level we've never seen before. That data will be collected and processed on a level never seen before. So there's a whole new science now, data anthropology. And the data will not only be the sort of data that you and I produce through our everyday behaviors, which is kind of given. The data will also come from the genetic makeup of human beings. So we will understand that there are different men and different women and things in between men and women that exist in human society. And we can start tracing their behavior in a contemporary setting. And because we get the data from that contemporary setting, we can then start applying it in human history. And what would be the first thing we would do? We'd probably go deeper into history to understand ourselves as historical beings. That's exactly what John and I set out to do. This is the foundation of the new trilogy. So while we were experts on technology and the relationship between man and technology, when we started the new trilogy, we started focusing more on man using technology to understand human beings. This is a philosophy we call socioanalysis. And I think Shlava Shishik should also call his work socioanalysis rather than psychoanalysis. Just like psychology attempts to be a social science, and sociology attempts to be social science, psychoanalysis is an art form, not a science. And in the same way, socioanalysis is an art form, not a science. So sociology tries to scientifically understand how human beings operate and build their societies, therefore sociology, we could instead do socioanalysis. So that's the term we launched before we started writing this trilogy. It's like, well, let's do socioanalysis, what it means to be human. And we realized that there were some really, you know, cool scientists out there who also saw the data anthropology would be interesting. We even talked to Google Ideas. They realized that data anthropology would be interesting for them. Who wouldn't want to know how human beings actually operate, especially in the social arena? So, for example, there's a whole new science called socioontology. Socioontology is the origin of the human species as a social creature. This is the study of the original nomadic tribe that apparently existed for some 60 to 70,000 years before human beings finally decided to settle. And we only decided to settle some 8,000 years ago because some lazy woman who was still sexually attractive managed to sit down her ass somewhere in Mesopotamia and decide she wanted to create the first permanent settlement. And simply because we've written language around, we could create the first permanent settlement. That became the beginning of cattle racing and eventually farming. And that's civilization as we know it. 
But before that fat woman sat down and refused to move and people stayed with her and we're the first nomadic tribe that decided to become a settled community. Before that happened some 8,000 years ago, we actually walked around for at least 60 to 70,000 years and almost our entire genetic makeup was shaped during those 60 to 70,000 years. So if you want to understand human beings social biologically, you understand how, how our genetic makeup changed during those 70,000 years to sort of fit in, in some kind of tribal environment and, and fit in with other human beings where we can orientate ourselves, we'd have to go back and actually do social ontology, which is just one way of uh, application of data anthropology. So this is what John and I set out to do. We started working with scientists, but we wanted to move into the contemporary society we have today. So I'm gonna cut it short but the first book, because it's a separate book and it's now in translation to German. The first book is called Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. Now, why did we write a book on religion and on God? The first thing we do, because people orientate themselves according to some shared value. And the shared value is God in the sense that if you allow yourself to think that God doesn't necessarily have to exist and God doesn't necessarily have to have created the world or be outside of the world, but God could be something that still has to come. Then you would understand that the way technology is used as human beings over the past 10,000 years is probably technology one day wanted to take over the world. At least technology has developed and progressed over the last 10,000 years, undeniably so in the last 100 years, undeniably so in the last five to 10 years. So technology is apparently moving towards some kind of singularity. We could just call the singularity God for now since something we put in the future. And since it's a God that is still to be created by us, or if the God of creativity you like, that God is called Syntheos, theologically speaking. So that explains why we wrote that book first. We laid the groundwork. We said metaphysics about the void. It's about the world as unity, the universe. It's about multiplicity. And it's also about what we can create in the future. So we wrote that book. It's, it's a foundational work to prepare for digital libido. And eventually we're gonna finish it all off with the new narrative, which is gonna be the third book that we're working on the moment. But where does digital libido come into the picture? Well, it comes into the picture because we gotta understand the paradigm shift itself but starting from a deeper understanding of what it means to be human. So exactly the sort of chaos we're seeing now that's you know, hit us so quickly post-corona Europe and post-corona America, for example, is what we talk about in the book. So the book is already prophetic only a couple of years after it was written. It's published in 2018. You can already see many of these ideas in the book are all over the place. One of them is, for example, wokeness. So. The word woke did not exist. We wrote the book three years ago. It only came along the last year. But we write about what we call the Rousseauian lynch mob. And what we're saying essentially is that when there's no sense of direction to a given society, meaning the future can only be chaotic, which is exactly the sort of society how when you go through a dramatic paradigm shift, because what happened is that all the old power institutions collapse. Politics is collapsing, has become ironic. Do we really care whether America elects a Cartman from South Park or a Corona Corpse for president in November? Probably not. But the fact that those are the two choices proves pretty much that politics has become an ironic social theory driven by dying mass media. We couldn't care less, most of us. So we see that academia is falling apart and, and mass media is falling apart. And they're all falling apart because woke culture is now attacking them. 
Why is woke culture attacking these old institutions that try to take over the old institutions? Simply because woke culture doesn't fit in in the digital world. It's not the woke people who win on Twitter or win on Instagram or win on Facebook. Why? Because they do not provide us with the value we as human beings are deeply looking for in any new medium we are confronted with. Why? Well, we wrote in the book called The Netocrats 20 years ago, that this is no longer a capitalist society. This is an attentionless society. This is all about who's wasting your time. The most valuable thing you have now is your time, not your money. That's why money is going towards, you know, zero rates because it's, it's, it's cheap and easy to borrow money because you cannot throw money onto something unless you've solved it in an attentionist manner before you solve it in a capitalist manner. So if you haven't figured out how you're going to communicate with the outside world and, and figured out how they will bother to listen to you when you do it, you cannot even be in a marketplace anymore. This, is, this phenomenon is called attentionalism. And in a attentionalist society, the algorithms we have around us they reward us for giving quality to people and for entertaining people. This principle is called the infotainment principle. And all algorithms out there are built on the infotainment principle. So if you keep the algorithm free from interference, the algorithm will tell you where you should go judging on your previous behavior, but also judging on the behavior of people that you trust, not just your friends, the people out there who share interests with you and if you are a lucky guy, and if you're a clever guy, people look for a quality that we call antagony in our work. Antagony means you're so smart you'll figure out if you just sit in the echo chamber and listen to the same people all day long who say the same prejudiced things you've heard a thousand times before, and you're too comfortable in that environment, you're going to be a digital underclass that we call the consumptariat. But if you go and look for people who disagree with you and challenge you, that's how you grow. That's how you expand. That's what academia used to be. That's what mass media used to be. That's what politics used to be. That's what any great, fruitful, creative human environment is. And that place today is the digital realm. And if you're clever, you get an algorithm that will reflect your behavior, the behavior of others that you trust, the behavior of your friends. And you will suddenly discover that people who have musical tastes that are similar to yours, but also challenge your taste, suddenly you get tips on Spotify on what you would listen to next. And it's kind of, wow, I love this. Because by using the algorithms, I get directed to things that I really want to consume or things that I really want to get involved with or interact with or people that I want to talk to, people that I want to create networks with. But please note that the winners in this game are the people who love the free and open algorithm. We're adamant about this in digital libido. We call these people libidinal. Because in a sexual sense, as, you know, in German, it's perfect because guile in German, a wonderful word that should be exported to all languages. But guile is this word of, yeah, I feel like I'm alive, but at the same time, I'm also horny. English and American people are so offended by sexuality that they try to pretend that these two things are different things. We're adamant that we agree with the Germans, non is deny, that actually being guile is a perfect state to be in, and we call it the libidinal state. That's why the book is called Digital Libido. So it's a book about the masters of this age. It's not that negative. The title itself says everything. It says that libido will make you a winner in algorithmic world. And that's exactly what the internet is. And since everything else being pulled into the internet world, everything is now moving online, rapidly so. That means the people who can keep a free and open algorithm and have the credibility to do so will be the winners. So who gets the attention? If you've got a free and open algorithm, who's the winner? 
the guy provides you with the infotainment value. That means infotainment, information here is educational. Anybody who makes you feel you grew by listening to them, anybody who educates you, anybody who provides more information and knowledge and helps you make sense of it, which is what good teaching does, good education does. So there's a great revival for education here, but it's going to be all online. And it's not going to have any of these old institutional requirements, like you have to sign up to university and apply to a course and go through testing and certification. Finally, you know, four years later, you get a little certificate that says that Oxford approved of you. Those institutions are dead. They're dead and over because we can go online and learn everything. We do it the minute we wake up. We do it as soon as we have a smartphone, laptop in our hands because people love to get educated. We also love to get entertained. So if you can mix education and entertainment, which is infotainment, the more you mix those two, the more people will come back to you that will return again and again to your website. They will listen to it more and more and more, and you will get the right people, not the most number of people, not the quantity, but the quality. You will get the right people that you do want to network with, that you do want to collaborate with. They will come back to you. And because of your libidinal energy, your sexual libidinal energy, your pathic energy, and, and, and this, this, this notion that you want to be human, you want to collaborate with other people, you want to create collaborative networks, and that you want these networks to be successful, then you're a winner. Now, why then the really, you know, drastic subtitles? Sex, power, and violence in a network society. Here's the, here's the nasty story. And that's why this book is the dark one of the three. Because there's a lot of people out there going to be losers. And they're also going to be online this time. That's the problem. Everybody is online. Everybody has access to a smartphone or laptop. Everybody in the world is online. We're moving towards 8 billion people online. And, you know, disqualify some babies and some corona corpses and probably 5 billion people are online already. So since the entire world now, is, the internet itself is moving towards zero cost to access and the entire world goes online. That means also that the losers will be online. And the tragedy of all class societies throughout history is that only a minority of people are smart enough to become the elite. And in this case, it's not even elite that have more money and wealth than the underclass has. This time it's an elite that only have one, uh, one asset that they find very valuable and it's their own time. And they don't want to hang out with the losers, they want to hang out with other winners. So what happens if you think of the internet first as a flat structure? Everything is flat, really. Everybody has access to the internet. Everybody has a Gmail account. Everybody has a Facebook account. Everybody has a Twitter account if they want to. You can open all these accounts, cost nothing. You can, you can, you can communicate with the outside world at no cost at all. That's a flat structure of 5 billion people. But very, very quickly, you get some nodes in this network. You get some people who have what? Great infotainment value. Maybe a group of people even have great infotainment value. When this group of people have great infotainment value, they pull in other people. After a while, they're so attracted that everybody wants to jump on board. And when that happens, you've got to moderate and you've got to cut people out. It's called a network pyramid. So you get a network pyramid hierarchy. The hierarchy in contemporary society is not between individuals. It is between the networks themselves. Now, if you want to talk to Peter Thiel, if you're a tech guy or something like that, you don't have access to Peter Thiel. Why? Because he has a very tight schedule. And he has many, many hurdles you have to go over, cross, to have access to him, so he will talk to you. Okay, that's very, very hard. Now, how do you get access to the most powerful people in a world that is so nodal, 
as the world's becoming now, that has so many nodes and they're super nodes on top of the nodes. Well, you can't, you can't get through. You can't pay your way through more than anything. That's why we disqualify the idea that this is a capitalist power structure. And instead, John and I say it's an attentionist power structure. Now, so where will all the losers go? Well, what the losers always did throughout history is that they took whatever ideology they could have from the past that suited their interests, and then they went after the winners. And that's exactly what woke culture does today. That's why it's a lynch mob. It's the exact opposite of an exodus. So the winners, the digitally libidinal people, will create their own networks. They will then walk off with their networks and make exoduses out of the society we have today, isolate themselves in digital realm. They might even isolate themselves in physical realms. They probably move to city states rather than large big nations these days. They move to places like Dubai and Singapore. This even now plans in small republics in, in Europe, like the Czech Republic and Estonia and Slovenia, that maybe these small countries are the places where the new elite will live in the future because they don't have to deal with tons of shit and other people they don't want to deal with. And since the vast majority of humanity is no longer a workforce that will make money for the rich elite, that means we now have a problem of redundancy of a lot of people. And therefore, they therefore go for what Nietzsche called the culture resentment. And, and one of the chapters I did a little bit of, it's at the end of the book, it's even called the dialectics of resentment because it's a dialectical process to the resentment. So you can read that chapter to deeply understand how what we call the Rousseauian lynch mob is being created. And what lynch mobs do is that because they can never win the argument when it comes to the substance of the argument, they will attack you for the tonality and the etiquette. They will attack you for your word use. They will say, you must not use the N-word and things like that. They will attack you for your etiquette. They will say you're rude and you're a man or you're heterosexual or you have a white skin color, whatever they happen to hate, whatever is into hate this week, right? So they objectify you. They will tell you you must be deplatformed. They will tell you you must be canceled. You must be taken off the internet so you can no longer speak, which essentially is to kill you. Because it's all life now happens online then being the platform is nothing but a digital execution. And they're doing it all over the place. And they're using whatever platforms they can use to do that. And those platforms are exactly the platforms that are dying. So before politics dies, before academia dies, before mass media dies, before old industry dies, this is about, I'm talking about marketing departments. Yeah, I'm talking about PR departments now at big companies. They've gone political now as well. They're also being politicized. So the woke people are moving into all of these different old institutions and try to milk whatever and just left of them. Why can they take over these old institutions? Because no netocrats, no winners in the society, none of the digital libidinal people will be there. Why? because they're all online. And what are they doing online? They're creating social media accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers. They're creating new institutions like Parallax here, where you can get educated and entertained in the most fruitful, most interesting way by people who put things on that site they themselves would love to share, okay? Those are the winners. So we increasingly see an autocracy rising some people who focus on quality, which can be very smart. You focus on few people, but you reach people who will rise very quickly through the hierarchy. 
or you focus on the quantity, which is fine too. And then you basically mass educate people on how they become successful online and get hundreds of thousands of followers. And you know, people will then follow you because they realize that you use the hashtags as a sort of guidance. You, you give people the hashtag and say, wait a second. For example, when we talk about black people in America, okay, who's my favorite Twitter account? Candace Owens. Okay. Would I love Candace Owens to be the first black president of the United States? You bet I would love Candace Owens to be the first black president of the United States. She's as anti-woke as you could possibly get. She's as netocratic as you could possibly be. She's strong. She's powerful. She's sexy. She's gutsy. She's smart like hell. She's funny like hell. And she's deep. All the qualities that infotainment says you should have. And what about her accounts? They have millions of followers already. Now, she reaches the masses in an autocratic way. Other people focus on reaching just a few people like we do at Parallax, but these people are people who try to reach and go into communication with and then explore ideas together with. So you can do both. But that is being autocratic, meaning we've left the old institutions still being around open for the woke people who show what we call the consumptarian behavior. So what is your most important asset then, according to the libido? The free and open algorithm. Will it be attacked? You bet it will. You bet that these resentful people will try to attack your free and open algorithm. And they're already inside the Google and the Facebook buildings and they try to control you. How do they do that? They do it through two ways. They do it through capitalism. Because we said capitalism is dying. It's becoming redundant. Attentionalism takes over the world. What is capitalism doing then? Capitalism tries to corrupt the algorithm and it's called ads. And at least Google separated the ads and we did Google search. We had the algorithm free and open so we could go and search where we wanted to search. We said, we want the quality stuff here that the potentialist algorithms are fostering and throwing, throwing to us so we can find our way through the chaos. That's a phallic order in the chaos. It's, it's called a phallus historically. Phallic order in the chaos. The algorithms are very phallic. So they would direct us. The ads were at least separate until recently. See so how the ads separate. Now Google tries to put the ads at the forefront. So whoever has paid for it now gets to block you. And a lot of us are then leaving and go to DuckDuckGo. So it so, gets so disgusted with Google search because it's apparently becoming commercialized. And we know that commercialism will distort our view, will destroy the free and open algorithm. And there's a word we have for that. We call it spam. And we hate spam. That's why having an ad blocker today and having a spam filter today is the first freedom fight that we see today in the internet society. That's digital libido for you. Now, the other thing they try to do when they don't have money and throw money at things and try to desperately get your eyeballs by paying their way to it, is that they try to manipulate you politically. And that's how political manipulations of woke culture is about today. And this is what we write about in digital libido. It's bound to happen was that we have a reaction from a political, resentful, group of people who, who hate the internet because the internet does not work to their favor because they simply haven't figured out how to have a high infotainment value. They just don't have the talent for it, to be honest about it. All they do is that they got Facebook threads where they bitch and moan and groan. And that's what they did the entire 2010s. For 10 years, we had the trolls everywhere, or the Facebook threads everywhere. And the people then would get into these environments, create their own echo chambers, and they will look for an abject that they could go after. An abject is what a lynch mob creates as an outsider they can run after and kill to release the social tension within the lynch mob. Hitler used it with the Germans, he called it the Jew. Stalin used it with the Russians, he called it the Kulak. 
Mao used it essentially and said that you're going to go and kill your parent because your parents are now become objectified. So they're abjects. So the abject is there all the time. So whenever somebody's being deplatformed today, whenever somebody is being accused of being politically inappropriate and therefore should be culturally canceled, whenever the woke culture does that today, they do it with the same argument all the time. These people must be removed. And what they do is they objectify the people, they make them abjects, and they can then attack them as much as they like, and then release the social tension after the abject is finally deplatformed. But they will pretty much very soon probably go after another abject because they're never pleased. Why are they never pleased? Because they don't get access to the power they're looking for, which is to be attractive in the online world. All they can do is to use the old platforms to attack you. So we're seeing a lot of this happening today and Digital Libido explains it. Now, for example, if you follow Jordan Peterson, he's the pop version of the same idea. He explains this very well. I mean, I highly recommend you to read his books. Maps of Meaning was a fantastic worker in the 90s. And he's writing these books about how you're gonna take these steps in your life, you know, to take care of yourself and to take some responsibility to be a proper grown up. Because you write about a digital libido is that it's the infantilization that is the major problem in contemporary society. And an infantilized adult who's not an adult, who's not a proper man or a woman, who's just an infantilized boy or a girl in a grown-up man's or grown-up woman's body, is becoming exactly the sort of crybaby that then becomes a central world culture. So what, what Digital Libido does is that what Jordan Peterson has talked about, what Camille Pagla has talked about in America, what Douglas Murray talks about and writes beautifully about in his book, The Madness of Crowds, Digital Libido is the more profound philosophical work that discusses the same thing and goes to the depth and understands what, what are crowds? What kind of crowds are there? Okay, there are beautiful swarms when people creatively collaborate, but there are also lynch mobs and these mobs go after you and they kill you and they're bloodthirsty. Now, what is the difference between the swarm and the mob? And the swarm can eventually lead to the exodus into the new, whereas the mob will not want the new at all. Rather, the mob What's significant for the mob is that when it has an accusation against you, the mob will tell you that you cannot, you can only repent, but you cannot be forgiven. So the lynch mob will tell you that, oh, here's an accusation. There's no way for you to actually argue against it. We call you racist or a bigot. Well, how do you argue against that? You can't. Okay. So they go after you. They also say there's no way out of the accusation. There's no end date to the accusation. There's no way for you to repay the, the debt, apparently, you get because of the accusation. So they will take any accusation they want. For example, it can be that uh, women are fantastic, men are nasty. That was me too, essentially, right? So you can make these accusations that cannot be met. You can't argue against them. But please remember, these accusations are apparently there to be valid for or eternity. So... They're clearly there to either milk you for the rest of your life or to kill you. That's what the lynch mob wants with you. What the lynch mob wants to do with you is either to milk you or to kill you. They have no interest in you whatsoever and being resurrected and getting back up on your feet and eventually joining them or whatever, you know. And why would you join a lynch mob to begin with? Why do you want to join a bunch of losers, right? You want to go and join the winners, don't you? You want to be in the winners club, not the losers club. But we're already now seeing that because we're all online and we're seeing a small minority of people who take on netocratic qualities and become the winners, 
We explored this in the later book, we explored it in this book too. We have the informationalists who replace the old capitalists because they deal with the information and data. We have the sensocrats who replace the old politicians because sensocracy is now happening. Why would you vote every four years when you actually vote every second with your smartphone? That opens up the whole area of sensocracy. Would that be a dictatorship or could that be something more plural and democratic? Big questions to be answered. We're working with them for the next book and we're involved in dialogues on those issues. And also there's like a new digital priesthood because a group we love a lot, John and I, probably because we belong to it, is the group that we call the shamanic caste. And here's where it gets interesting beyond a digital liberal. Because we do sociontology, because we do data anthropology, because we know a lot, a lot more about humans than we ever did before. We also know history much better than we ever did before. We know big history. We know deep history. We even know that if we're going to look for the phallus to direct us and give us order out of the chaos, then the phallus also needs to be looked for in history, which we call the root of the phallus. It's an expression that John and I use. So we can look into history much deeper than we did before. And what do we discover? We, di we discover a map according to which people orientate themselves. This whole new area of both philosophy and science is something called tribal mapping. So the tribal map you see in Digital Libido is a map you could put yourself on. That's when it gets personal in this book. So the tribal map will consist of a matriarchy at the center, which we call the inner circuit, and it will then have a patriarchy outside called the outer circuit. So most men, the vast majority of men are comfortable being regular heterosexual guys and you know, they want to do men's work and be proud of being men and they want to work hard and deliver to the women or whatever. That's what most men like to do, like 92% of all men like to do that, according to the data. Then we put them in the outer circuit. Then the vast majority of women are heterosexual women and they love to work hard and you know, do the right thing in life, but they also love to give birth to children and be part of the reproduction process. And because they're part of the reproduction process, which is still, the last time I checked, is the female monopoly. That means the inner circuit is the center of the tribe because without the inner circuit, there can be no reproduction. And without the reproduction, the tribe cannot survive. So the fundamental idea of a tribe something we call nomadology, is the idea that men need to serve women so that women want to give birth to babies. If women don't want to give birth to babies, society falls apart. So there's a matriarchal power, which is the negotiating power between the older women and the younger men who are horny on how you negotiate the sexual ritual in the tribe. Now, please note here though, that there are two border areas we're talking about here. There's first a border area between the outer circuit and the inner circuit. That's when the androgynous caste lives. The androgynous caste is about 4% of the population according to data anthropology. There's 4% left though, and that's what we call the shamanic caste. And the shamanic caste are outside the outer circuit. They're basically walking back and forth in between tribes. And many historians like Jar Diamond, Mercy Aliad, and others have done anthropology on, you know, tribes in New Guinea and Brazil and discovered there are these people who put on weird costumes and walk in and out in between tribes, even in the middle of battlefields. Shamans. Okay. So the shamanoid personalities are people who are not very comfortable inside regular society. They're basically the outcasts. We probably pull most of our scapegoats and people we want to, you know, use as abjects from that crowd too. So the shamanoids live a pretty hard and rough life and take tons of risks, but they're the only go-betweens between the tribes. 
Now, if you're the go-between between the tribe and other tribes, and basically if you met somebody from the other tribe, you would kill them in an instant, right? Because they'd be on your territory. Well, what would they do there if they weren't there to take your food away from you or steal your wife or kill you? You would kill them, right? Not shamans. The shamanoid people walk back and forth between cultures easily, and they're allowed to because they're just a bit crazy, aren't they? Well, if you have a monopoly on the communication with other tribes, then you have a monopoly on the communication with the outside world. That means it's not only the horizontal communication with the outside world that is a monopoly, but also the vertical communication with the outside world. That means religion starts with the shamanic caste, meaning you go to the shaman and have the shaman talk to the gods. And that's how you get a narrative and a story for the entire tribe. Now, what we're doing in the book, essentially we're saying, this is a whole new field of expertise. We're basically philosophic exploring travel mapping. We're basically telling you, look, if you, like us, have access to Google ideas and their data, the Google computers around the world, the data centers, and say you have access to tons of data, the first thing you would probably do to find out what it means to be human is you would go back to the origin of humanity, going to the 60,000 years of nomadic tribes that shaped us. You would find a tribal map and you would love to put yourself in your specific male or female or androgynous or shamanoid archetype onto that map. And here's the thing. We need to start separating these things again. We need to start separating men and women. We need to start separating the exclusively heterosexual people from the very queer ones. We need to celebrate the androgynous, but not as an ideal for the rest of society. We should all not live like rock stars and die young. Okay? A lot of the mistakes are made in the 20th century that Jordan Peterson also addresses, that we address more deeply in this book, are due to the fact that we weren't given a proper travel map so that each one of us could put themselves on the map and say, this is the kind of man or the kind of woman or the kind of queer person or the kind of shaman that I am. And, and this is, you know, at the end of the little bit, this is what we want to provide and put forward and just basically ask social scientists, why don't you dig deeper into this? Because if you can get a map like this for people to, to use as a map for themselves throughout their lives, so much would be gained. So uh, I think I'm gonna finish there. So uh, digital libido is at the center. It's very now, 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 because obviously a lot of the things in the book are already happening way quicker than we thought but because of Corona that's already happening. We're seeing the move to digital is happening much faster than people expected. From digital, we're then going to an augmented world where we fix and mix digital and physical all the time. But we'll also see the old institutions fall apart and they need to be replaced. And before the old institutions that used to run the world, but they no longer can because of the internet, but before politics and academia and old industry and mass media fall apart completely, there will be chaos. To get out of that case, we need to become enlightened and aware of what's going on. And we need to create new institutions that replace the old, real, symbolic and imaginary powers that we were used to. But the only way to do that is not to save the old institutions. It's just like you burned down Versailles. You created the new institutions when you created the Republic in Paris in 1789. It's the same thing all over again. We need to, out of the internet, start talking to the people who are already winners in the online world, from tech giants to Twitter stars to Instagram stars, whoever it is, and realize that these people are now the power brokers. They are the power. And we need to make them enlightened and responsible about the power they have. But we also need to meet the current lynch mobs with defiance. And the way you meet them with defiance is you stand up against them and say, you're wrong. And that's what Jordan Peterson says. That's what Douglas Murray says. 
That's what Alexander Barnier and Sadek say. We say the same thing. We say that whoever is the savior today, whoever is brave enough and courageous enough to stand up against the lynch mobs, does us all the service. And the way you stand up to the lynch mob is say, listen, I'm against you, but I'm not only against you because I'm not like you. I'm not against and against. I'm pro something. And what I'm pro is a return to original humanity. I understand how the collision between the original humanity and digital can happen. What can come out of the digital tribes? Can they then go from tribes to sort of nations and empires that work in this environment? I'm working with that for the next book. And see if we can create larger social models that people are comfortable with and that people trust. And this is where crypto and all the new other technologies come into the picture to create much more advanced, larger societies built on trust. Because otherwise we can't save civilization. Thank you a lot, Alexander. That sure, was okay. quite some dense information on lecture. Um, before I will open the uh, stage for audience members to ask a question, I, I wanted to just ask you about an opinion of yours. What Do you think there's a, a relation between awokeness and this wokeness culture and uh, a possible back, backslash in the political cu uh, culture in favor of Trump. Do you see there is a, a relation there that people Oh, are yeah, yeah. The problem is this. Um, what happened was that in the 1970s, the left stopped reading Karl Marx. We use a lot of Marx in our work, Sedekist and I. So, for example, Netocrats is a very Marxist book. It's a book about class and class analysis of contemporary society. But they stopped reading Karl Marx in the 1970s because they were furious with the workers that the workers didn't want the revolution. So they went for something called intersectionality. Starting in the 1980s, intersectionality was developed as the new idea of the left. But if you had asked Marx, he would have hated it because the idea was that you removed class and pretended class did not exist. When in reality, you should both have a class analysis of the capitalist society, which is about money and wealth, and an attentionist class, society, class analysis, which John and I have developed. And the attentionist class analysis says that the internet is some people, a small minority are winners, a lot of people are losers, and this is how that works. Okay, so if you made the class analysis, you wouldn't need any of this woke shit. What happened was though, that it was comfortable for the middle classes and the you know academic middle classes to sort of run around with people of color and people of different genders and different orientations and all kinds of exotic shamanic looking people and pretend that this was the future of the left. And I think there was a terrible strategic mistake in the 1980s that the left made both in Europe and North America. And here's how it works. The way it works is that you got to find an abdict because if you're going to unify Muslims and women and homosexuals and everybody, whatever, and all kinds of new letters you haven't even heard yet, identities you must remember apparently, probably like 78 different pronouns or something. But if this, this hysteria, this, this multiplicity that no longer makes sense, multiplicity for the sake of multiplicity, they've got to be unified with something. So what the theorists like Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe and Judith Butler have all said is that you got to find something that unites you. And the un unification is no longer somebody within the group. It has to be from outside the group. So it's the same way that Hitler found the Jew. You got to find an abject. It turned out it was very comfortable for this alt-left, since that existed first, to make the white heterosexual man the abject. The problem is that the world has been run by white heterosexual men for the past at least 400 years, true. 
but the vast majority of white heterosexual men happen to be regular workers, not power brokers. Okay, but you comfortably put anybody with white heterosexual male in the category of what you could attack as much as you liked. That meant the left turned against its own history. The left aggressively turned against its own workers. Those workers no longer found any response at all in the left, which used to be Marxist, which used to be pro their interests. So they left. Where did they go? Of course, they then became the alt-right. But the problem with the alt-right, is just another Rosson lynch mob. John and I are not for Trump or for Biden or for woke or for anti-woke as things are now. Maybe we're anti-woke, but this is just more woke. So the other woke here, or the awoke, if you like, in this case, is the alt-right. So what did they say? Well, they say, since this is now nothing else than victimhood cults, and it's a competition for who's the biggest victim, and the biggest victim in this race gets the biggest compensation, and nobody works any longer, nobody's creative any longer, nobody does anything constructive any longer. It's just a race to the bottom of who's the biggest victim. Well, if everybody has turned against you, it's only a matter of time before the white heterosexual man is going to stand up and say, no, I'm the victim. That is the alt-right. So we ended up in this trap with alt-right and alt-left. And I think the rest of us sort of will pull back and retract from it and look at Portland, Oregon in 2020, which we said several years ago, that's probably the first place we're going to see an outright struggle for months between the alt-right and alt-left, where they're also going to get weaponized. And that's exactly what's happening in America at the moment. So you see these two camps, the alt-right and the alt-left get weaponized. And it doesn't matter who wins the election two months or not, because whoever loses at the losing side, I'm sure are going to get weaponized and become more military about what they do. And then we'll see if the National Guard of America and the next president can stop them because otherwise America could go towards civil war. That's, that would be my ne next question. Do you see a civil war in the foreseeable future within uh, the United States? I did, but here's where I have to bring another friend of ours, Thaddeus Russell. And we did a podcast recently with Thaddeus, correct him. I said, no, Alexander, you know, I'm an historian. And whenever we've been close to civil war of that magnitude, the only civil war America had was, you know, the Northern states against the Southern states. It was essentially a war about, are you going to have an industrial economy or a farming economy in North America? And they then made slavery the symbolic issue of that struggle, and that was a civil war of the northern states. One, America hasn't had a new civil war since then. This was the mid-1800s, but it could have another one. And that was my speculation with John Sodekis. I said, decreasing looks really bad. And because every time the alt-left and the alt-right, they love each other, because if they get everybody else out of the way, this becomes a war between the two of them. That's what the alt-left are trying to make Joe Biden their candidate, and they certainly got Kamala Harris on board, so they can walk up against Trump and say, listen, even the election of who's going to be the president in the White House is now nothing but alt-right versus alt-left. All other options are dead. That's exactly what these two camps want. They want a war between the two of them, and they don't mind because they're bitter and resentful, and always watch out, bitter and resentful people have no problem at all taking two weapons. It was exactly when the Jacobins, who were the pacifists at the beginning of the French Revolution, it was exactly when the Jacobins realized that they were out of the power game and they were losing the game. That's when they suddenly turned bloodthirsty. And when the Jacobins, due to the guillotine, could take over power in France and ruled it for a few months, it was a bloodbath. I'd be very, very careful with this woke culture today because both the woke from the left and the woke from the right, if they realize that they're beginning to lose whatever struggle they're involved with, 
And the way they will sense it is that they will get less attention for what they do. When they get less attention for what they do, they will go more militaric. They will go more violent. And the violence will increase. Now, Thaddeus Russell says, by that stage when that happens, the old elite and the new elite, say the old elite of Washington, D.C., and the new elite of Silicon Valley will unify and create a national guard that will just blow out these two camps so America can return to peace. I'm not sure Thaddeus is right, though, but at least I'm listening to his arguments. And I think it's between Thaddeus Russell's intra-American understanding and the understanding we get from Europe when we look at America. It's like, wait a second, you had a civil war in the past over slavery. You could certainly have a civil war over woke this time around unless we get some more civilized positions now that are neither of the two sides. All right. Perfect. Okay. So now, um, my reading glasses is I can read also the chat channel. Right. So we got, uh, uh, somebody who wrote something on the chat. Is there anybody else who wants to address or Alexander or ask him something? I think it was a great, it's, it's a large question, but it's really great for Meran Nogabai. So if Meran wants to get involved with us, that'd be nice. Okay. The question is about the algorithm. I can, I can, yeah. I can read the question. So yeah. everybody uh, also in the future will be on board on that. So I read it. Uh, people are mad or confused like hell and dissatisfied with the alternatives that are offered by the elite. How can algorithms help people to understand how we got here uh, and how the power system operates? The, uh, the elite would definitely resist like hell for its privileges and all this is priced in in the apocalypse or singularity of all kinds waiting next door or even in the Abrahamic uh, as well as uh, Matsdaik or our uh, <laughs> religions becoming in constant war with each other th since 3,000 years. Saying that, what the hell is going on in the heavens? <laughs> that covers quite a lot of territory there. Uh, yeah, I'm also very interested in, in, in the Eastern perspective, and we're working a lot with that. The new book actually takes the Silk Route as a starting point. So you're going to get a lot of this Zoroastrian, Iranian heritage, a lot of Indian and Chinese philosophy in the next book. That's for sure. We don't start with the Greeks. Uh, you, you, some of it is already digital libido. So that answers that. But Okay. The interesting thing is that how can algorithms help people to understand how we got here? Well, you must understand that the only way for the algorithms to operate properly now is to not try to manipulate them. Because once you get into the manipulation game, and you try to politicize the algorithms, like the algorithms should be nudged in a certain way because certain things are desirable, you become the tyrant. That's exactly what authoritarian power does today. And this is the similarity between the Chinese Communist Party and between woke activists in California. That's I'm terrified of what's going on at the tech giants at the moment, because I know from inside Google and Facebook, there are a lot of people who want to politicize their environment and they want to redirect the algorithm. And it's happening already. I mean, if you tap marriage onto Google search, you immediately get a black gay couple. Like if you, 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 you must not be racist and you must not be anti-gay and therefore they throw that picture into your face, even if your algorithm wouldn't have done that if you had a free and open algorithm. And this is where we need to stay out of it. We need to just resist infiltrating the algorithm so the algorithm can stay free and open. 
And the way you, you, you explore that is you basically ask people, would you like to have a free and open algorithm that isn't manipulated by people for political reasons? And would you love to have a free and open algorithm that is cleansed of all ad and spam that advertisers type to throw in there? Would you like it to be without manipulation corruption? Anybody would, of course, answer, yes, I would like my free and open algorithm to be free and open. Now, that means we must not use algorithms in any way where we try to direct them. We must let the phallus rise, so to speak. The phallus will spontaneously rise out of the system. But if we, for example, have a dialogue here that is a quality dialogue, both to us and to people who follow it and get engaged with it, the algorithms will point towards our dialogue if they're kept free and open because the algorithms will kill everything that isn't quality out there. It will also sometimes kill some quality too in the process. That's so much quality that most people don't even get it. That's tragic to understand. There's a tragedy we sometimes have to live with. But essentially, if you do quality stuff these days and you're good at explaining it to people and hopefully do so in a fun way, you will get the algorithms to go your way anyway. And that's the way we should look at the algorithms. Stay out of manipulation. Okay, now we um, have another question from Roberto. He asked, what good reasons do we have to suppose that we can now have a real comprehension of humans. Many ages have had this illusion. I don't think it's only a matter about data, of data about humans. No, that's correct. Very good question. Okay, but we know more. We will know more. Now, whether we know more inside our own heads and can process it's a different question, okay? For example, when I study philosophy and when I sit with Hegel and Nietzsche, I discover that they spent every day of their lives reading tons of books, much more than I do. And I discovered that my students that are, say, 25 years old, that I work with, read far less than I had done when I was 25. What terrifies me is that we spend too much time surfing and jumping from one thing to the next, and we learn a few lines that are good for cocktail conversations, but we actually don't go deep. But human beings are dialectical. They are also responses to things that we do. We no longer want to be in the Facebook threads behaving like trolls. That belongs to the 2010s. We no longer want to stay in echo chambers. We want to be challenged. We want to be antagonic in our behavior. We're learning as we go along. And, and the same thing here that I hope that people go in and stay within deep studies. I actually think that monasteries will come back in a big way, but the monasteries will be Wi-Fi monasteries this time around so they can both be digital or physical. But I think people will have an enormous need to isolate themselves, maybe for months at a time, to really be able to study something deeply without getting disturbed. That's one of the lessons we'll learn for the 2010s. Like where, the, where the hell can I be for four months to study something properly without constantly being disturbed by my smartphone? And these are the things people are learning, and we can call this a digital monastery culture. I, I would prophesize and say that's definitely going to come in the next 10 years. But when it comes to the data, because we have more data available about humans, human genome, the human body, the human history, the human brain, how it operates and how it interacts with the outside world, we can at least theoretically say that we will probably be able to say a lot more about humans and humanness than we could in the past. Right. Okay. So now um, I just see that I can't integrate the participants in this live uh, Zoom. So we have to do it via chat. Um, there was a question by Jonathan. Uh, I will read it again. Can you say more about your understanding of the difference between drive, desire and transcendence? How do you relate these psychoanalytic concepts in your social analysis? Thanks. Great question. Love that one, Jonathan. Okay, so um, 
Jean said Christau has found that Jacques Lacan's division between drive and desire left a little too much to the imagination. So if we're going to talk about drives and a division of drives, then uh, Lacan's description of drive is something mechanic. So it's mechanic, something demandingly mechanic is a good way of describing drive. So what is mechanistic about it is drive. And desire is always, that's something that's exclusive for humans. Animals don't show desire. And, and, and desire is here uh, something that comes as a byproduct of language. So you, we symbolically desire something and we have an imagination about the drive, okay? Uh, although I think Lacan is ignoring instinct a bit too much here because a lot of human behavior is just pure instinct. Say for example, you know, when you're born, if you drop the baby on the mother's body, you'll immediately crawl to the tit and start sucking the tit out of instinct. And instinct is, of course, how animals, intelligent animals, maybe operate. So it makes sense to speak about instinct. And the great thing with instinct is we then get a name for what we can call animalistic drive. And it helps people to differentiate in psychoanalysis between being mechanical in the drive and animalistic. So the animal in me did this is what we would talk about in terms of instinct and the mechanic side of me, the eerie weird thing in me that is just strictly mechanic, that's just energy being thrown into some kind of a system and then it does things is what we then call pure drive. And pure drive and instinct then has desire correctly, which is what we get from the symbolic and we get that from language. But what's interesting here is that we also need to understand transcendence as a drive. What do you mean by that? Well, the idea that you can be part of something bigger or greater than yourself is a drive. The idea that even if you're gonna die one day, you can leave a heritage behind like your children and they can have a different world than yours and you can actually prioritize what's great for your children. You can prioritize in your life what's gonna happen long after you're dead rather than just prioritize your own self-interest. That's transcendence. Transcendence is incredibly important for human beings simply because it comes out of getting tired of the desire and it also comes out of the fact that we're tribal creatures. And the, the way we came up with transcendence as different from desire was that, you know, it's always when you go back to our masters and you discover there's a loophole in their argument. So you become more them than they are. You become more Freudian than Freud. That's where you discover where Freud misses out on things. You become more Hegelian than Hegel. That's where you discover the zeitgeist must be split. It can't be one. You can be more Nietzsche than Nietzsche. You discover the Ubermesh must have company. He's a tribal creature, so there must be at least two. Okay, so you discover these guys have it really figured out fully and you use them against them. You can do the same with Lacan. And then just the name of Jacques Lacan is he never discusses like he wouldn't do because he likes to be dark and negative and everything. Like he's, he's very much a gothic guy, let's put it that way. He's a bit like Lovecraft, right? So Lacan never discussed in his work what would it be like to be his analysant, you know, his patient, and be successful with the process. What does it mean to be somebody who's post-psychoanalysis? Because there's obviously a state when you post-psychoanalysis. Lacan himself hopefully personified that state. Even if you arrive in a sort of weird, eerie Lacanian place, we realize that you're trying to fill your empty self all the time. You can't stop doing it, even you know it's kind of in vain. Okay, even if you do that, there is an enlightenment to knowing that. And the answer we have is that if you get the enlightenment, the Lacanian enlightenment, which he doesn't discuss, then that state is what we call transcendence. So we have four different drives, and I think it's a richer variety. It makes sense to add more to it without inflation, to speak about instinct, pure drive, desire, and transcendence when we approach human drives.
-hmm. Right. Okay. Now we have a question for, from Aurelian. Um, I will read it again. Also, I mean, I came to this book, Digital Libido, after first reading a lot of Nietzsche. When, I've read, when I read Nietzsche, I found in him something which, uh, something which just seems sorely lacking today and which almost seems incompatible with the climate of today. And I find in you and a few others that you've mentioned, your approach to philosophy and politics and of course in your book. Well, okay, what is it? What it is, is the willingness to speak the harsh, harsh truth, to critique us, everyone, the dominant culture and the cultural expressions of the time and, uh, and, and analyze its true consequences. Why do you think this type of truth speaking and critique so incompatible with today's, why, ah, okay. Why do you think this type of truth speaking and critique is so incompatible with today's cultural climate? Is it also part of the infantilization of academia and society in general? Very good question. So, um, Aurelian, the, yes, uh, the infantilization is partly responsible for that. The infantilization, according to us, is where we agree with Nick Lund, started in 1945. Um, we had Hitler, we had Stalin, we have what we call fake fallacies in this book. And we're looking for the authentic phallus, the authentic leader. Even more so, we're looking for the authentic savior to get us out of the mess, the order in the chaos, you know. And um, when we get the dictators today, that will be Xi Jinping, for example, who don't get it and therefore are fake fallacies and can take us into, you know, terrible states. I think China is, is a very uh, unstable culture today because of the Communist Party's current dictatorship. Um, those fake fallacies are really dangerous and often what they do turns out to be bloody because they personify the same mechanisms that we see in woke. They personify the lynch mob, the tyrants. But why is this rare? Well, it is corruption. And it, this is also because it's easy for us as human beings to see things short term. So we watch the news every day. We get up and we watch the news and we react to the news. But what we, what we don't see, we don't see the long-term movements over long periods of time, la longue durée, as Henri Bergson calls it beautifully. And we do that and we see patterns. For example, the corruption of academia was very much down to the simple fact that if a professor disagreed with another professor, none of them was fired. It's not, it's not like you competed for the same post. There wasn't any competition like there is in the marketplace. At least the marketplace, or say a bazaar, historical marketplace. There's a certain point because new forces come into the marketplace all the time and want to market their wares. Therefore, there's competition. Because there's competition, you keep fresh blood in the system. But the way academia has worked over the last, say, 60 to 70 years is basically that, oh, okay, so these two different fields do not agree with each other. Let's put a new prefix in front of them and then even further institutions. So we had a massive inflation of academic production, but the quality was lower and lower and lower. Why? Because there was no antagony thrown into the system. There were no challenges thrown into the system. And if you're never challenged in what you do, you keep producing it and producing it and producing it, and it becomes more and more junky, and finally nobody cares about it. It's like an academic paper today. Does anybody care to read it? No. Nobody reads academic papers any longer. Do academicians care? They haven't seen this movement because it's taken decades for them to reach there. They get paid more than ever, because we force the students to take on academic educations they no longer need. So this is like, there's like one huge institution that's about to fall dramatically in the next 10 years, and that's academia. Simply because 
why would anybody pay for Harvard University now in the fall of 2020 when everything at Harvard goes online and it costs you $55,000 to attend a semester at Harvard when you can get the same thing at Praxis.com for $1,200 with a certificate? It's only a question of time before the certificate from Praxis.com looks better than the one from Harvard because Praxis.com is not completely rotten with woke culture like Harvard is. So Harvard is killing itself from all different directions at the same time. And of course, if Harvard does that, you can never imagine how bad it is at the smaller universities and colleges in North America and Asia and Europe at the moment. So we're seeing this lowered quality everywhere. And it's a lowered quality and people need to keep their day jobs and they need to pay their mortgage. And when people have loans to pay and anybody who's below 50 years of age in our society has loans to pay and everybody's above 50 years of age when they're no longer corrupt, have money to spend and then they don't care any longer. That means the people who do the careers now between 25, 50 years of age have mortgage to pay, they need to keep their day jobs. They often have the day jobs within these old institutions that are dying and therefore they keep their mouths shut. It's a massive corruption of the whole system. And I get it here in Sweden because when I speak the truth here, because I basically managed to build the position from which I can speak my mind. I'm paid to do it. And I'm unique in that sense. When I meet people, they all say, well, you can't say that, the things you say. And I just say, well, I just did. Yeah, you can say that. Yeah, because I created a platform from which I can be courageous. To be courageous, basically simply being smart about creating a platform for which you can speak freely. And that to me today is to go online, create your own channel. If you don't trust YouTube, create your own webpage or something, or go to some more open service. Get a Gavin Parler account if you don't trust Twitter. But the way, place to go right now is to go online like Parallax has done here. You go online, you do everything you do online. And suddenly you created the free and open platform, which is also free and open for you as an agent to act from. So I think, I think the problem with the dominant culture you're talking about correctly, Aurelian, is that all this dominant culture comes from the old institutions. And I think it is impossible to speak the truth like Nietzsche did. It's impossible to speak the truth from within politics. It's impossible to speak the truth from within academia. It's impossible to speak the truth from within mass media. And it's impossible to speak the truth from within old industry. But if you leave all those and move to the digital realm, then it's possible to speak the truth. Nietzsche would agree strongly. Perfect. We have two more questions. Sure. Uh, one by our own Andrew Sweeney. He writes, uh, tribal, uh, tribal mapping is about discovering archetypal identities. Is, is this how we solve victimology? That is the victim being ultimate identity of the post-Christian nihilistic modernist ethos by giving people primordial identities. By rediscovering the primordial identities, how, we do, how do we not reproduce the scapegoat cycle between eternalism, nihilism, God, victim, etc.? Okay, good question. Yeah, good question. Uh, travel mapping helps, at least for people to orientate themselves in a timeless manner before they put themselves into some very temporal, which is the digital world we live in now. So... We want to help people to do that. This is also a new ology. This is archetypology. So archetypology, essentially the science, when I decide what kind of personality are you. Now, there's a problem though. I can guarantee you that if you apply archetypology on a timeless manner, you will end up with the sociant and the 60,000 years that shaped us. 
That means I can guarantee I can talk to any man or woman alive today and say you're a winner in the sense that we had a job for you or a social position for you that would not make you resentful, but actually make you proud of who you were in the original tribe. But because society is so different today, we can't guarantee that's the case now. That, that is the tragedy of history is that we can guarantee that people had a position because they genetically are here and they were given birth to by somebody who wanted them to be alive, hopefully. And because of that, the archetypology, we can give this to give them, okay, 5,000 years ago, you would very surely have been given this opportunity to do this. This is the type of personality you have. This is the archetype you belong to. But because the archetypology also has to be contemporary one, for example, when it comes to your education, your profession, your career, what kind of man or woman or queer person you want to be. The problem here is that we don't know that. And we don't know where those people are going to end up. And the people who then become the losers, I think we have to be honest enough to say you have a personality type that finds it very, very hard to make a career in contemporary society. And because you're going to put a lot of robots in the factories and not guys like you, because the robots work better than you do, um, my God, what are we going to do with you? Okay, we don't have that answer. And of course, of course, people who are left outside of systems like this, you know, the lumpen proletariat, the Karl Marx would call them, because they're not part of the winning proletariat. They're part of the lumpen proletariat for which Karl Marx had no hope. So we're going to have a sort of technological lump in proletariat. And of course, they're going to be recruitment ground for people who are bitter and resentful. And the only mode they know because they cannot commit an exodus, they can, can't do exodology, is they're going to recommend you join one of the lynch mobs. And if you're alive, you're around, we're going to see more lynch mobs. We don't have any guarantee that's not going to happen. It's actually very likely. All we can do is that we have to argue against these lynch mobs we probably have to leave and end up in an atomic bomb bunker in New Zealand or move to Slovenia or somewhere. We get lower taxes and are protected and we have borders protected. I think gated communities are going to be all over the place. Digital Libido says that gated communities are going to be all over the place because the elite want them. So uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not an easy picture at all when you look at the overall picture. But, uh, you know, is there recruitment ground here for cults of resentment? Yes, there is. Would these cults be powerful? They will not be attentionalistically powerful, but as soon as they get some kind of attention, especially taking over all these institutions that still are around, they're bound to do so. So expect the mess to stay for at least another 50 years. Right, okay, so now I have, let me just see, um, one question by Jonathan. And we had a question about time also. They was a yeah, and, yeah, and about, by Carl. And so we started Yeah, I think they're connected because they're both time questions, right? Yeah, can okay. I, so, so can maybe, I just answer to Carl first to say that? Yeah, circa, let, me, let, me yeah, ask, yeah. let me read the question so future yeah. listeners know what you're referring to, right? So the question by Carl is, what is your take on circular time? Right? Okay. So uh, the next book we're working on, the follow-up to Did Libido is called Process and Event. And this is the very likely the title of the book as well. Fits in with Did Libido. Where they connect is that Did Libido discusses the original nomadic tribe. And it then discusses its idea of the world, which is called nomadology. Because it's a nomadic tribe, it's on the move. So everything has to be about how you move a tribe. Well, it's led by phallic power, split phallus, priest and chief can always split. They lead and then a matriarch at the very end who pushes you forward. This is the mythology, for example, of Moses, Aaron and Miriam, the three siblings that lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. So it's, it's, it's a mechanism that returns in, in exodology. Um, now th that's, that's how the original nomadic tribe moved. 
they believed in circular time. Mircea Eliade showed this in his 1950s book. The, if you read the book Shamanism, for example, Mircea Eliade, and another book is called The Eternal Myth, The, the Myth of the Eternal Return. If you read Mircea Eliade, a great Romanian anthropologist from the 1950s, great inspiration for Jordan Peterson, by the way, it's his biggest hero. And if you read Eliade, you'll discover that the patterns he discusses are always about circular time. And the opposite circular times we talk about it is linear time. And linear time is quite recent. That innovation is less than 4,000 years old. It was invented by Zoroaster. We founded Zoroastrianism in Persia, ancient Persia. And he basically said that, okay, because not every circle of history is the same, there is a small deviation. And the deviation can actually be expanded on. For example, the son can build the societies different than the father did. And because written language had arrived, it became obvious there was more data available. If more data available, you can create a more advanced culture. So Zoroaster's idea was simply that because we could create a more advanced culture, it doesn't make sense to think of time as something circular. So he introduced the idea of linear time. And the linear time is called eventology. That's why the book is called Process and Event. It discusses process time, which is circular time, and it discusses linear time, which is eventology. And these two different ways of looking at time are actually now some moving into time studies per se, because if you study subphysics, which is like the part what's prior to physics, because it, it looks like our universe is a big bounce and not a big bang, you discover that physicists need two time dimensions for that to work. And funny enough, time as we know it turns out to be linear. It started 13.8 billion years ago with the expansion of classic space time with the expansion of the universe. That's guaranteed. But there must be time prior to time. It's called hypertime. And it turns out hypertime is very warped and weird. Maybe not circular, but incredibly warped and weird. So we don't end up with infinities when we look at different universes. Now, that's an area of study that I love. It's an area of study where physicists and philosophers and just everybody is really interested in grand theory going at the moment. But I find it very, very interesting that actually linear time and circular time are returning in the world of physics as well today. So we had, Jonathan had another great comment about time. Right, but again, le let me read it oh. for future listeners so everybody's on board. Jonathan uh, asked, if there's time, I have one more question. Throughout your books, you use the term network dynamical. Can you say more about what you're referring to with this term, particularly in a social context rather than a cosmological context? Thanks. Yes, I am a radical relationalist, and so is Jan Sedekist. What we mean by that is that relations are prior to relata. So before you get interested in the object that little Emmanuel Kant is sitting staring at as the subject, there, is, there are relations. There, there's the relation between the subject and the object. There's also relation within the object. So everything starts with relations. And fundamentally, that's what physics is. Physics is the beginning of relations that are subphysical. So potentialities, become probabilities to then become actualities. And once something is actual, you can start measuring it and you can bump into it and you can be walled at anything. So relations are prior to a lot in our philosophy. We're radical relationalists. And we take a lot of this work from Alfred North Whitehead, who was the originator of radical relationalism. So he took Leibniz's and Nietzsche's ideas of relativism and basically said, it's not only that the relations between the objects are relative, but actually the objects themselves are relative within themselves. So he's like, he's like a, you know, an inverted Hegelian in that sense. He, he thinks like Hegel, but he thinks like Hegel about objects and subjects. And 
when you tear the objects apart that way and discover they're just relations or relations or relations, you become a radical relationalist. Now, that is cosmologically correct. But why would we apply that on human beings? Because human beings are tribal creatures. Now, if, if I wrote philosophy for polar bears, who are very solitary animals, they hardly even get along. They even eat their own kids if they have to. Like they, they're not like, you know, they're not sentimental as humans are when it comes to being brutal. So polar bears are solitary animals. If I wrote philosophy for polar bears in relationship to technology, I would probably write to them, why don't you explore individualism? It's a beautiful idea for autists among humans and actually makes sense for all polar bears. Okay, the vast majority of human beings are fortunately not autistic or, or narcissistic. Maybe I am to a certain extent, but you know, not, not more than I can be a social creature. Human beings are deeply tribal social creatures. So to understand human beings, it makes sense actually to apply relationalism onto human beings. And in the synthesis book, we explore this idea. We dig deeper into it a little bit, and we call it social relationalism. So social relationalism is the philosophy then when we apply it on the man-technology interactions, we call it network dynamical because networks are dynamical in themselves, but between networks, there also has to be certain dynamism. And if a network is no longer dynamical, it tends to die. We lose interest in it and we leave it and we get out. So that's why network dynamical, which term we use in all our work, is now tied also with social relationalism. All right, another question by Aurelian. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, is that a female name? I don't know, Aurelian, I guess so. Or is it a, a male name? Um, I'm a PhD student myself uh, at Malmo University studying philosophy. But you're saying universities are becoming obsolete and your prophecies all seem to come true. So any advice for an aspiring philosopher Philosophy is so important, but I don't see other platforms for it outside academia. Where does, uh, where does philosophy go, in your opinion? Ah, and he says he is male, so there we go. Okay, uh, so Aurelian, uh, Jean Sedeklist and I knew that this would happen. Already we started working together almost 25 years ago. So we are academics, um, but when I do academia, for example, in Stockholm School of Economics, I'm actually a teacher at the management um, on the management level, digital studies department at the management. So that's executive education. Essentially, I teach people who really have careers, middle-aged, and they want to move from middle management to top management within corporations and institutions. And they want to know what's going on in the digital world, and I teach them that. But I'm actually not there as a philosopher. I knew philosophy would lose by being inside academia. I had the discussion with two friends of mine you might know, Alexander Vrede Ilen, who's a very talented young Danish philosopher, and Cadel Last, who's a great new Canadian philosopher who, who works in, in the tradition of Lacan and Shishek, and he's based in London. And we had a conversation, a private Zoom conversation today, and we talked about it, and I said, Maybe speculative realism, which was very, very hyped like 10 years ago with Graham Harman and Quentin Melasu and, you know, some other guys. Not much happened with it, to be honest about it. Not much came out of it. Maybe that was just the last hype coming of, out of academic philosophy. These were all academic guys who made academic careers. And the way they pursued their philosophy was by writing books in response to one another and then sitting in white-walled art galleries 
having philosophy discussions with black turtlenecks. So it's always become like a parody of what it means to be a philosopher to do that kind of work. I never wanted to be part of that scene. I, I opted out. I, I knew I had to find my audience and the people I wanted to collaborate with in a, in a much longer route going outside of academia to find them. But I'm now discovering when we reach 2020 and Johnson, my books are read just about everywhere and get to travel around the world. And we have a fantastic life filled with cognac and, and cigars and great books and, you know, great discussions and fantastic students and, and fantastic interlocutors. Exactly the life we wanted, we finally can live it now, but we're totally outside of academia. I would strongly recommend you to find other friends your own age and then build your own digital monastery and keep it digital for now and have regular Zoom conversations and other things and then work on your philosophy. And then we want to express your philosophy. Also remember, I think Jordan Hall said this to me last year in America. Jordan Hall said, I intend to be the first philosopher since Socrates who doesn't write books and see if he can do his philosophy strictly through using podcasts and webcasts and new media. Uh, that, that's a big challenge because actually at the end of the day, it's great to write a book and summarize your work at least somewhere. That's why you put the books out there if you're a philosopher. But I would strongly recommend you to self-publish your work. I would strongly recommend you to leave academia as soon as you possibly can. I strongly recommend you to read as much as you possibly can, get as deep into philosophy as you can, and express your own way of doing it. Like find yourself on the bigger tribal map of philosophers. What exactly is it that you could pursue and philosophize on and then write about and express? And then do it from a digital physical monastery platform. Parallax here, good example, much better than investing in academia today. Right. Now, we have a question by Oliver Griebel. Uh, Oliver Griebel is a philosopher uh, and a very smart one indeed. He translated Synthesism, you know, which comes out uh, in the spring of next, next year. And so he writes, hi, Alexander and Tom and everybody. Great to see Alexander giving a lecture. I've actually translated one of your books from the English translation. Having become quite uh, acquainted with some of your ideas, I look uh, looked forward to see you interact with other post-postmodern thinkers in the German Integral Conference, which is now cancelled. My question, do you know the integral and cultural evolution te teachings based on Gene Gebser's and Claire Graves' work? There's notably the idea of an integration of traditional modernist and green postmodern cultures, mitigating culture wars, at least in major Western nations. Do you believe at all in an integral culture which could reconcile these clashing cultures? From what I've just heard from you, you seem to see the groups elsewhere, sociologically and culturally, netocracy, consumptariat, etc. So I'm yeah. very happy, actually, that, uh, that he asked that. So um, go ahead. Very good question. Actually, there are a couple of questions in there. Yes, I'm very familiar with Gebser's and Graves' work, and I deeply prove it. I think it's great. Uh, I, you know, I'm an old fan of Ken Wilber, at least as a psychologist, I think it's brilliant, and I think it's very useful. But when it comes to the philosophy itself, this eagerness for integration sometimes tries to jump to the integration and doesn't realize that you always pay a price when you do that. Uh, to begin with, traditional modernist and green postmodern cultures here are very much from the old paradigm. Uh, for example, um, when it comes to the green issues that are very adamant, you know, they need to be solved. We've got climate change ahead of us. I'm much more an ecotopian than I'm an environmentalist because the environmentalism ended up as sort of a dystopian cult 
headed by a young Swedish clever girl called Greta Thunberg, but it doesn't solve the issues. The way to solve the issues is develop new technologies that actually solve the issues. It sounds kind of weird to use technologies against something that we're partly bring technology for, but I think a culture of exploitation can be replaced with the culture of imploitation. That's something we worked on in the Netocrats 20 years ago. Why do you understand the principle of imploitation? You then have imploitation within systems from anything you build, say algorithms, anything else, you use imploitation as a principle. The system in itself must be sustainable. You build the system in such a way that if the system is still around 100 years from now, you built it the right way. Okay, so implantation can be used as a principle. Then you discover that with ecotopianism and maybe a fourth generation nuclear power, which environmentalists in Europe are aggressively against because they go for wind and solar power or whatever. They also hate genetically modified foods. Well, maybe genetically modified foods in 2030 is not the same thing that it was in 1992. So you cannot just ban future technologies outright because you're scared of them. That's a dystopian attitude. You need a utopian or even a better, a protopian or playful attitude towards technology. And that's from an ecotopian. And ecotopianism is an idea that grew out of the digital environment. It didn't come from out of an attempt to integrate environmentalism with its opponents, which is essentially climate change deniers. Rather, environmentalism ended up debating the climate change deniers endlessly because environmentalism itself had become too authoritarian. Now, the second you stop being in authoritarian, allow for difference rather than integration, allow for more difference rather than less within a field of study, you discover that actually you silence your opponents and it's actually your side that wins the game, but it wins the game by actually moving on to a new higher dialectical level. That is to really understand Hegelian dialectics. And that's what's lacking, I think, in Wilbur's analysis. And I think my response to that is that I don't want the integration if the integration is only an integration of several old movements that haven't even sorted out yet, whether they have a heroic or a victimhood-focused attitude towards the future. Because I can assure you that if you're going to build the future and make that work and save us from climate change and save us from the atomic bomb spreading across the planet and causing havoc, we're going to solve the major problems of humanity. And the solutions to those problems are ecotopianism, cosmopolitanism, other ideas that we explore in our books. The only way to do it is actually not to integrate the old fields of study too early, but actually partly to leave them, move into new digital realm, then discover who represents heroic here. And not heroic in a naive, super comic book figure sense, because that's dangerous, right? But, you know, truly phallic in the sense that we're going to get there. We're going to make the exodus. We're going to achieve this, and this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to implement certain principles that shows that we've learned from history. And we're not going to repeat the mistakes of the previous paradigm. We're not going to exploit the planet to death. We're going to employ every resource we have. You know, once you implement those ideas, you've learned from history, use new technologies, you have more data available, the chance of you succeeding where the previous paradigm failed increased dramatically. And that to me, it's not about integrating too quickly. It's all, it's all about keeping the space more open to more lively debate. And please stop deplatforming and stop cancel culture instantly. And the reason why the integral conference in, in Germany was canceled was because there was a deplatforming activity that went on. And when woke has found its way into Walbarian culture, I can tell you then Walbarian culture is a really dangerous place. You don't want to be there. Well, yeah, that, that was the debacle, as you say, in, in Germany in regard of the 
integral conference because the person in question, if I may say so, uh, were you, of course. And so it was. Just, it is like uh, the, the, the spirit of debate and discourse, which should be like the prerogative of an integral community, was hijacked by a woke actor and woke ag uh, agent who doesn't drive really with what you're saying, but in a way wasn't fit to debate you actually, although this option was on the table, but he flat out declined. And so you see where, where the wind was blowing from, you know, so. That's um, what I don't do. I debate with everybody at all times. And, you know, as long as I'm being treated with respect to people interested in dialogue, I can debate with anybody. That's called democracy. It's something we should be proud of. We created in the previous paradigm. We're now trying to save and construct a new version of it that actually works in digital realm. We haven't really figured that out yet, but I think uh, a system of plurality, because plurality is good in itself, plurality is good for creativity, and since we need to be protopian in the future, you know, not reach for utopia, but reach for protopia, as Kevin Kelly calls it, then I think the protopian ideas could foster a sense of plural sensocracy as the model for the future. We're working on it. It's not easy, you know, but we, we owe the Xi Jinping's of the world an answer. We all the fake phallus of the world and ask what authentic phallic power could look like in the digital age. And it's going to take us a while to get there, but that's the real challenge. Okay, we have two more questions. So, or three again. Um, so I start with Anton. You talk a lot about different archetypes in the tribe. You often mentioned the trickster. What other archetypes are there and what roles do you think they play in modern society? Very good question, and very good question in the sense that I will not answer to it fully. Uh, we are not anthropologists, and we don't pretend we are. So we do, philosophically speaking, as we launch the tribal mapping model, and says this is a better model to understand human beings than going to individual psychology, which makes no sense at all. That's why psychologists failed. I mean, there are psychologists who realize this. Greg Henriquez in America, some other psychologists doing great work at the moment and trying to revolutionize psychology because it got stuck in the individualist paradigm where human beings should not be in the first place. So travel mapping helps. It also helps to sort out why the shamanic castes suddenly became rock stars and idols in a culture that had no other men, especially, or proper women to look up to. We were missing the patriarchs and the matriarchs in a youth worshiping culture. And what we learned from the 20th century is that when you go for youth worship instead of Western worship, which is incredibly rare in history and very dangerous, when you start worshiping youth, you tend to worship youth when they behave in a shamanic or androgynous manner. That's not for everybody. The, the thing with the androgynous cast that I celebrated, but just like Camille Pagli, I said that, yeah, but the androgynous characters are meant to be a minority and they're meant to be the go-betweens between men and women. And we need them precisely for that reason. And that's also where they're comfortable in any culture. So I think getting the tribal map right is what we work with. And I think it's up then to anthropologists and archetypologists to find the exact archetypes for people to identify with. But that's deeper social scientific work that not necessarily philosophers should undertake. All right. I think we have a last question now mm -hmm. from Miran. Mm -hmm. It reads, since the, techno uh, since the technologic imperative is, is a driving force and technology is highly militarized and used as tool for conquering and control, especially in a Faustic, in a Faustic culture, who could control the technicians? Will technicians hire their own priesthood, holding them away from what you call the Barrett Absolute? 
Yeah, it's the, the borrowed abstract. It's actually a concept that's not in the digital limited book. We're exploring it for the next book. So um, the problem is whenever you ask somebody to control somebody else, you're going to go for authoritarianism in two seconds because otherwise, how would they be controlled? I don't think we can control the military through elections. We've learned that because that's when it falls apart. We can also not control the military with other means. It is a, a difficult institution, but it's an institution in the sense it should protect us from outside threats. For example, you can hold the military responsible for the failures when it comes to fighting the corona pandemic. The military should certainly be the institution that defends us from the outside threats. That's exactly why we don't mix the military with the police. The police defends us against internal threats, the military defends against external threats. An external threat, for example, is a pandemic. So I think the military, we get to, you know, give them something to do, and they're usually fine. So if you give the military something to do, which is, for example, to protect the territory against a pandemic, you give them a new responsibility they should actually take care of. It should be a military thing. That's, that's what you should do with the military, I think. I think when it comes to weapons spreading, yes, China and America are now so mad they could go to war with one another. They could be war over Taiwan in the next 10 years. That's how bad it's gotten. It's just something John said to Kistner predicted 20 years ago. We didn't think the world would be as bad as it is right now. We were as shocked as everybody else was when Xi Jinping declared himself dictator for life in China in 2014. We didn't think a Chinese leader could be so stupid as to declare himself dictator for life. Because the only way you get rid of a dictator is you either kill him or wait until he dies. You get a North Korean system. And the last thing the world needed in 2014 was for communist China to turn into a massive, huge communist North Korea. That's exactly where China is heading today. That's why the system is unstable and that's what's threatening to world peace. The problem is that no matter who's in the White House, if he gives in to the Chinese, which Biden is likely to do because he's corrupted by them, or if he plays around like a little boy with a bunch of toys like, like uh, Donald Trump would, the problem is that any of these two presidents could put America to war with China. That's how bad the situation is. That's very real. Because otherwise, I would have said a few years ago that the real threat in the 21st century is that the atomic bomb gets spread across the planet and the people start to be innovative about it and then think they can create atomic bombs that only have local damage done. And as soon as you create atomic bombs that only do local damage and you put them on a drone, the military has got the new favorite weapon they're looking for, which is to send the drone and not sacrifice a single soldier's life from their own army, but actually send a drone into the community they're fighting and then kill tons of people with an atomic bomb. The worst thing is though, if you think of the recipes it takes to create an atomic bomb that Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey are chasing, probably from corrupt Pakistan engineers at the moment, meaning the atomic bomb is very likely going to spread. This is still to me and Jan a bigger threat to world peace than climate change. The biggest threat is still the spreading of the nuclear bomb. So it's sort of a phallic pharmacon. We both believe in nuclear power more than most people do when it comes to solving the planet's issues. We also think the spreading of nuclear bombs is a much bigger threat than people have realized. So we're back at the 1980s and realize that nuclear bombs is the biggest threat of them all. Because if you make a nuclear bomb in the nearby future in a more smart technology than you have in the past, and you put the nuclear bomb on a drone, this is perfect for any terrorist to send up from anywhere in the world and straight into a community full of people and kick down not just skyscrapers, but a whole city and then smither it all 
with nuclear material. So I think that that threat is very real. And it's one of the problems when you're advocating anarchy and openness on the online world. It's going to be that you've got to fight these guys say that, well, if you have openness online, we're going to have terrorist sex to create nuclear bombs on drones very soon. And I was like, yeah. So fortunately, yeah, that's, that's a major problem. One of the biggest problems of the next 100 years. All right. So... Um... One last question by Aurelian. But before that, can you just, for because Nick uh, had an additional question, just in a couple of sentences, could you expand on what you mean with the barred absolute? The barred absolute. Okay. The bar, it's not barred like my name. It's not B-A-R-D. It's B-A-R-R-E-D, like enclosed. Okay. The barred absolute, that's what it's called because the opposite of that is the barred subject. In a Lacanian psychoanalysis, you don't have insight into yourself. Your subject is invisible to you. So it's called the barred subject. Uh, the opposite of that is the barred absolute. So if you think of the barred subject, then there must also be barred object. It's called the objet petit uh, in, in, in psychoanalysis, Jacques Lacan's French, meaning that the object is never accessible to you. You chase it all the time. This is the one object you chase. It could be another person. You want to fall in love with somebody. It could be an object you're obsessed with, but you're always chasing the object, an object that's prior to all other objects in your life. So that's the barred object. Now, if you just move that to the next phase, then you get the barred absolute. And what that means is that the absolute is the ultimate horizon of your worldview. Like think of the absolute most ultimate thing. Usually people say God or something like that, but if you think through it thoroughly, it doesn't have to be God, but the absolute, absolute, absolute ultimate arise of your life is called the absolute. Now imagine then that you live in a culture where the elderly tell you, you don't actually have access to the bar, to the absolute. It's barred to you. You cannot have access to it because your own subjectivity is barred. Then why not the absolute? And this is foundational for the religions called Zoroastrianism and Judaism, whereas Islamic Christianity broke with that tradition. And Islamic Christianity, the absolute is accessible to us. We can all pray directly to God without going to any go-betweens. That also means God has absolute and direct access to us, for good or bad. I would say that Islam is a religion where God has access to us and we have to behave. And in Christianity, we have access to God at all times, so we can always go to God and he will always be interested in us. And if nobody else pays attention to our tweets any longer and nobody gives us a like any longer, God will sit there bored on his cloud, look down on us and say, yeah, he likes everything we do. So, see, you know, unconditional love endlessly is the Christian God, right? So if you have the sort of vulgar idea of divine love, then that is, there's no absolute, there's no barred between you, the absolute is accessible to you. I think that is a dysfunctional idea how religion operates. It's a dysfunctional idea of human beings operate because when you're a child, adulthood has to be barred from you. That's exactly why we don't give pornography to kids and we don't want them to be thrown into battlefields with outright violence to kill people. We don't want our children to become murderers and porn stars, right? That's precisely because we keep them out of the pathic realm until they're grown up enough to understand what that is. That means that that realm is barred. That means the, the adulthood is barred to children. It's something they look up to and aspire to. And when they're ready for it, they're allowed to write a passage in our culture to go from childhood into adulthood and the adulthood is no longer barred from them. But then when you're in adulthood, there's certainly a lot of shamanic practices are barred from you. There's certain things you're not allowed to do as a grown up and they're for good reasons probably. So the elders and the shamans do certain things you don't do as an adult. And then you move on. So the barred absolute is always what escapes you. 
that you don't have the right to have access to yet because you're not ready for it. In Eastern philosophy, it's called Sutra and Tantra. I think those terms are wonderful. I think we need to introduce them to the West properly to understand the shift between the Sutric and the Tantric. But this all deals with the Bard Absolute. All right. So now we uh, got to the last question of this wonderful evening. And it's a, it's a very interesting question. Uh, it lingered all the way through what you were saying. And and it's beautifully expressed here. Postmodernism in the terminology of digital libido is a project of pure mortidinal death worship. This is antithetical to Nietzsche's ideal of the strong and fallacy independent man, I guess. Postmodernism, postmodernism often cites Nietzsche as one of its most main inspirations, but it seems he would never want to be associated, associated with what they are selling. So what exactly has happened here? I agree strongly. Okay, it's a great comment from Aurelian. I, I usually say that postmodernism, this says, this may might be vulgar version of it, since nobody agrees on what postmodernism is, we could just use it that way. But um, Hitler, Ayn Rand, or postmodernism, who was the most vulgar misinterpreter of Nietzsche? Apparently, Nietzsche is a guy that a lot of people misunderstand. They also do that with Hegel, they also do that with Freud, they also do that with Marx. And I, I've come to believe that it's a, a sign of the grandness of this thinker that they're being so misunderstood by so many people because there's something incredibly glamorous about them because they're so amazingly smart and productive. So they're great philosophers and that's why they're being misunderstood. Yes, what Nietzsche meant with his relativism was that he started to move the world around. So he started realizing that there are relations in the world and these relations actually dictate how you value things. And prior to Nietzsche, Leibniz did this. Leibniz did this with, with physics and he did this with biology, did this with the world. Leibniz was the guy who said that there is no actual center to the world. The world is not spatial in that sense. There are distances between objects and depending on which object you start from, that would be the center of your study, but there is no center per se in the universe. That was actually Leibniz's genial idea already in the 17th century. And if you follow all the way through from Leibniz up to Nietzsche, you realize that Nietzsche takes that sort of relativism seriously and he then attacks Christian Protestant Europe for still being this sort of Christian Platonist fantasy that he wants to attack. He wants to go after Plato. And he also wants to go after what he thinks is the mismanagement of that type of culture. He wants to go after the sort of naive Platonist, we call it the Peter Pan syndrome directed culture that he finds and instead look for something much more lively and thriving. And that's why he goes into the Dionysian as opposed to the Apollonian and he discusses Dionysian Apollonian. In our work, that's a split phallus. The Apollonian is then the priestly and then the Dionysian is the chieftain. So we have these roles as well, the split phallus that Nietzsche talks about. And we then split them in smaller parts that Nietzsche didn't. That's what we do in our work. So I agree with you strongly. Nietzsche is heroic. And that's why I would never believe in a culture that ultimately says there are only victims and this is just a race towards the bottom. That would be the total opposite of everything Nietzsche stood for. Nietzsche is heroic, he believes in the Ubermensch and the Ubermensch sets the standard for everything else in Nietzsche's universe. So there is a fixed point in Nietzsche's ideal and that is to be and stay within the heroic realm and stay heroic no matter what happens to you. 
And that's exactly why the most heroic person is not the people who are born to be heroes. These are people who fight and struggle their entire lives and against the elements they establish themselves as being heroic. And this is where I'm strongly Nietzschean. This was my opposition against Black Lives Matter. I'm totally pro-Martin Luther King. I'm against Black Lives Matter. I think the shift between these two guys is the same shift we did when the West in Europe left Marx and went for Rousseau. The same shift again. Because it was difficult to stay in the heroic. People became lazy and arrogant and went for victimhood cults. The problem is that the victimhood cults tear us apart and will destroy us. So I want to finish this off by just saying that the ultimate argument against postmodernism is actually not Nietzsche's, but it's the Hegelian argument. When postmodernism says that there must not be any single truth, it has just declared itself as that single truth. And that's when you should really watch out for the tyrant and his lynch mob. All right. Well, I think we, we got it. Alexander, thank you a lot for doing this. This was highly enlightening. Thank you a lot, Tom, for having me. And again, kids, guys out there, check out Parallax. I love it. Right. I want to be part of it. I want to be part of building Parallax, definitely. Right. I, I also would like to thank all of the participants and these great questions. So um, to keep this all lively and ongoing, and I hope we will have uh, a couple of those events in the, in the future, parallax events, parallax lectures, building our community, building uh, the academy of strange and new thought and wild thinking in the best possible way. So I wish you all a beautiful, uh, what have you, mon mon Monday, Monday evening, and Alexander, you're uh, in Stockholm now. I am in, in Palma and from wherever you are, I hope um, you get through this weird year and this crazy year and you're all fine. And thank you for participating. <laughs> all right. There you go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Speak soon, Tom.